get it. It's pretty simple. Crucified 
Is the 
gonna sing that again. want us to begin tonight with the Lord's Prayer, and, and I want you to pray it using debts and debtors, and I want you to pay particular attention to the words that you are praying, okay? Because I, I think it's one of those prayers that you learn and you pray so often that it, it, maybe the words don't kind of reach out and grab you around the throat like they probably should, and, and you know what? It, I, maybe that's okay. I don't know how many people actually believe the Lord's Prayer the first time they pray it. I think it's one of those prayers that the more often that you pray it, the more it, it sort of gets a hold of you. But I want to start with that. Then I want to come back to a line in the Lord's Prayer. I want to ask you all some questions, actually. And so uh, it's going to be a little bit of a group participation thing. But, but pray with me. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, now, I, I want to uh, alert you that the president of the university is actually here in the room. Okay? But I want to ask you this question. Should there be a difference between the business degree offered at a state school and the business degree offered at EMC? All right, I had some people say yes, nod yes. How, how should it be different? Give me, some, give me some answers. What do you think? Ethics? It's a great answer. Hopefully, that it, you know, the well-rounded education you get here that has a particular Christian slant says you need to do business this sort of way. It's great. It's great. Somebody else, how, how might it be different? Don't make me call on you, I will. How else would a business degree that you get at EMC be different than one that you might get at a state school with no religious underpinning whatsoever? Any guess? What about an education degree? Should an education degree from ENC be different from an education degree that you might get at a state school? Let me take you off the hook. I think so. Tell me how, perhaps, it should be different. Interaction with students. So if you get a, if you get you, so let, don't let me put words in your mouth. Um, an education degree that you would get at ENC is going to encourage you to do interaction with students in a particular way. Sort of, a, sort of a ministry or even a calling for some teachers, right? And you want to believe that if you get a, an education degree from ENC, right, that it's going to be that calling. Anybody else about education? How might an, an ENC education degree be different from an education degree you might get somewhere else? Yes.
like that. Very good. So did you hear what she said? She said, all students uh, at ENC, you're going to be taught that every person, every human being is made in the image of God, so that should somehow affect the quality of your interaction with other students. Very good. Any other ideas? Those are all great. In other words, what you, yeah, go ahead. Servant leadership. That's great. You know what? That's a great topic. Uh, leadership might be something specific and unique here as opposed to what it might be at a, at a state school or something like that. Now, I'm not putting down state education. I, I'm not. I'm just saying that at ENC, my hunch is, having talked with some of your faculty members and your leadership, they intend for the degrees that you get here to be uniquely and thoroughly Christian. And it's because we believe that Christianity has something to, op to offer to the world. Correct? Right? So what we talked about last night, how many of you were here last night? Okay, several of you were here last night. What we talked about last night, for those of you who weren't here, we talked about the unique and compelling love of God that takes this particular posture, that takes you into himself, and says, okay, I've got you, I'm holding you now, just breathe. And what I said last night was, it is, that is the image of God that is sustaining my Christian life. I can do Christianity that way when I do it as a response to the love of God. Make sense? Now, it's intensely personal, but hear me, and I think you know this because of your answers already. It's intensely personal, but it is not private. Do you agree with that? This Christianity thing, it is intensely personal, but it is not private. I've I got to tell you, here's what I believe. And actually, you just prayed that in the Lord's Prayer. But my hunch is that a church that's going to have as its main symbol a cross, a school that's going to incorporate a cross into its crest, an organization that's going to be Christian has to, by definition, if you're going to call yourself Christian, then that particular organization has to positively affect life, with a capital L. Is it, how many, are, are you with me on that? I would say this to you, that the biggest threat to our witness, not a word we use very much anymore, but the biggest threat to our witness to those people out there who don't yet believe or who used to believe, who just have never believed, is this, that somehow we'll get so wrapped up in our private sense of spirituality and re religiosity that our faith makes no difference to them because they kind of think that we're just doing this faith thing to avoid hell and get to heaven. Can I say that when Christianity draws a target around heaven, I think it misses a huge chunk of the gospel. Now, I believe in heaven. I really do. I believe in heaven. I believe in the hereafter. I really, really do. I'm just not sure that's the target as much as it is the result. Make sense? And so you've just prayed this incredible, amazing prayer. And there's this crazy line in this prayer that goes something like this. You ready? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know why? I did some checking around. There are a lot of reasons, and those of you who are historians will know this better than I do, but you know that churches typically enjoy tax-exempt status. In other words, we don't have to pay taxes, we churches. And the reason is there was a point in time in our nation's history when the government looked around and they said, wow, we have poor people. And we have folks who can't read. We have all these social ills. And they looked around again and they said, you know what? Churches are helping us. And churches are actually feeding people. There are churches involved in helping. Sunday school actually was supposed to be a literacy program first. Did you know that? There are churches that are actually helping people to learn how to read. And so how can we assist the church as the church assists us in helping improve the quality of life? Well, we will at least grant them tax-exempt status. It also helps with that whole separation of church and state thing, Right? I kind of think, and this is very unpopular, especially in my area, but I kind of think that churches should be held accountable for the good that they are doing or not doing in their neighborhoods, I think. I think it should put a church's tax-exempt status in jeopardy if all they're doing is shining up saints and not helping in their neighborhood. That's what I think. 
Because I think Christianity, when we understand and fully flesh out Christianity, is supposed to improve the quality of life. Not just for those who are participating in that church, but also for those who live around that church. How are we doing? Is this making sense to everybody so far? Now, how will we go about doing that? Somebody asked a question today, and, and, and I didn't. I got to, to speak in a class today, and I really enjoyed that, by the way. But there was a, a question asked, but it wasn't by somebody in that class, and it, and it went something like this. Okay, John, I heard everything that you said last night about the love of God and how God wraps himself around me and how God embraces me, and, I, and my Christianity is my capacity to respond to that love with a lived out, I love you too. But then where is the passion or the energy or the drive for ministry? It is right there. It is right there. Have you ever noticed how you're wired? When someone you know loves you, it unlocks your capacity to love. You know how I know? When someone that you know loves you says to you, I love you, what wants to jump out of your mouth? I love you too. Right? There is something about being loved that unlocks your capacity to love. And it's there where I hope, I hope that you are finding the energy and the intentionality to go and move and change. But I'm concerned, everybody with me? I'm concerned that we aren't at our church and that we aren't often enough at all churches teaching our children, teaching our teenagers, teaching our college students and our adults and our senior adults. I'm, I'm concerned that we aren't often enough or doing well enough to teach all of these people that love must be turned into love. And when love isn't turned into love, then we lose that one ingredient and that one element that can absolutely change the world. All right, I'm going to do a real long biblical history lesson here, and then I'm going to move into our scripture. Now, uh, um, last night we talked about Abraham and Sarah. Well, before they were Abraham and Sarah, they were Abram and Sarai. So I'm going to do this whole long timeline thing for you, okay? I'm going to start down here and we move this way. Is that good? All right. So you got creation, blah, 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 Abram and Sarah, okay? So God says, I have always wanted to have a body. I've always wanted to be embodied. And so he says, I'm going to create for myself a family. I'm going to create a family. And in this family of people, known as the people of God, I am going to be embodied. And he starts that whole process with Abram and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah. And sure enough, it works. You know, we've got Isaac, and then we've got Jacob. And actually, in the process of wrestling with God, Jacob, actually, this is a funny story. I've got to tell you this. Jacob actually has a twin brother by the name of? Esau. Okay, now Esau actually means in Hebrew hairy. That must have been a beautiful baby, right? Means hairy. And Jacob was actually born second, hanging on to the heel of his older brother Esau. His name, Jacob, actually means heel grabber, right? Well, that's how he would live his entire life, always wanting what he didn't have. He desperately wanted to be the firstborn. He wanted that birthright. He always wanted something that he didn't have. In fact, he wanted the blessing from God, and so he wrestled God for it. He wrestled God for it. And actually, it was a pretty good wrestler, apparently, because he kind of wrestled God to a draw, and God had to sort of ruin his hip. But in the process, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God. Pretty cool, huh? So now you've got Israel. Now you have this entire family that will explode out of Israel. Well, eventually, there's a whole lot of people, and they find themselves, this family, they find themselves actually, um, because of a long series of events, and I don't want to go into the whole thing, but I'm still in the book of Genesis, actually. They find themselves in Egypt, right? And one of their own family, a guy by the name of Joseph, is the second command in all of Egypt. And so this family is here because they are suffering this giant famine out there, so they are under... They are under Egypt's protection, but sooner or later, when they forget about Joseph, Egypt forgets about Joseph, they're under Egypt's control. And now they are just slaves. Slaves. But they're growing. They're growing and growing and growing. And finally, Egypt is actually intimidated by the number of slaves here. And then Pharaoh says, okay, we've got to make sure we keep these people under control. And so he surely tortures them and, and berates them and hurts them and belittles them and makes them slaves. And then God calls this Moses character, Right? 
And then Moses actually comes in and helps God to liberate the children of Israel. They run and they're out and they're on the other side of the Red Sea. Remember this whole thing about Prince of Egypt? Have you seen that one? And the Ten Commandments and the Egyptian army is collapsed upon and crushed underneath the weight of the Red Sea. But on the other side of the Red Sea, the people of God are finally free. They're finally, actually, this is the first time that they're really a nation. And so God gives them the law like a gift. And with the law, they're sort of organized. Organized, again, to be the people of God because God's always wanted to have a body. So far, so good? Do you know why God has always wanted to have a body? Because God's always wanted to make a tangible difference in the world. Does that make sense? God has always wanted to make a tangible, real-life, practical, touchable difference in the world. That's the reason God's always wanted to have a body. Otherwise, he'd just be content to be the spirit sort of floaty thing, right? But he's always wanted to have a body. All right, so we're back over here. Sorry. Free of charge. So God's over here now, and the people of Israel are organized according to this Torah, according to this law. But sooner or later, they got upset with the fact that God was their leader, and that leadership was mediated through judges. They looked around, and they saw that everybody else had a king, and so they said, we want a king. We want a king. God says, no, you don't. They said, yes, we do. And God said, all right, you can have a king. The first king was was Saul. Then the next king was David. Then there was Solomon. And then there was political trouble. There were 12 tribes that made up all of Israel, but sooner or later there was a split between these 12 tribes. And the 10 that remained in the north, they continued to be called Israel. But the two in the south, Judah and Benjamin, they were called Judah, right? So you have two kingdoms now. The upper kingdom, the northern kingdom, they actually got wiped out by Assyria. About 721 or so B.C., they get completely wiped out and they just, they are no more. So you still had some semblance of Israel, but it's the southern two tribes. And then they get wiped out by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that King Nebuchadnezzar. Just completely wipes them out too and carries them off into captivity. But not too long after that, Babylon gets wiped out themselves by Persia. Persia wipes out Babylon. And somehow the king of Persia finds a Jewish woman very attractive. And he marries her, makes her queen, and grants her a wish. And her wish is that people would be allowed to go back to their homeland, back to Judah, back to Judea, back to Jerusalem, so that they could somehow rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, rebuild the city that had been destroyed, rebuild the walls that had been destroyed. This passage of Scripture that I'm going to read to you tonight is what they saw when they walked back home and started walking through the ruins of their old city, their old beloved city. It's out of the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah has 66 or so chapters, something like that. But it actually spans a huge, long period of time. There's no way that one person wrote all of that. There's no way that's just one book. We actually think it's actually three books crammed into one. This part takes place somewhere around 535 or so B.C., when they were coming back from exile, giving per- given permission to do so by the king of Persia, king of Persia allows them to come back and look at their torn down temple, their torn down walls, their torn down city. Now, remember this. God has always wanted to have a body. God has always wanted to be embodied. God has always wanted to be embodied because it would be in that, in that moment and at that point when he is embodied that he can make that tangible, touchable difference in the world. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but if we were to go all the way back over there to Genesis 12, when God called out to Abram and Sarai, God said this to Abram when he called to him, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and through you all nations on earth will be blessed. So God's desire was not just that his people would be benefited, but God's desire is that the entire world would be benefited by his people, by his very embodiment. Does that make sense? In other words, our calling as believers has always been to the rest of the world. It's very important that you catch that. That's always been God's dream. That's always been God's desire. That's always been God's calling for us, that we would be a benefit to the rest of the world. But somehow or another, we have had the capacity in our shared history to make decisions that got us in trouble. And and really, (laughs) 
the exile. The exile is what happens when the people of God made decisions to wander away from the will of God. They found themselves in trouble, and now finally they're coming back to see their torn down temple walls and city. Skip to that Isaiah 58 slide, would you? The first one. Oh, if you have your Bibles. Oh, that's interesting spacing. Look at the Isaiah 58, and we're going to look at the second part of verse 9. Now, I've got to tell you, these are some of my favorite verses. In fact, these verses have become sort of my ministry theme. Now, I keep dropping hints to my church. I need someone to do this sort of needlepoint thing on a giant pillow that I can put in my office or put it in frames for me or something because these verses have become hugely important to me. This is, in a few slides, what OKC First is about right now. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you should be like the watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. I love this. You ready? Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Oh, that is beautiful. Does anybody else like that? Is it just me? I love that. That we would be called, that this is the ache, this is the dream for those who would try to be a part of that process whereby God is embodied for the world. This is the dream that somehow God and us working together in partnership and tandem would be that means whereby the breach, the break, the fracture, the chasm is repaired. And the means whereby streets can be restored. Now how will we do it? How will we go about repairing the breach and restoring the streets. Will it just be by feeding the hungry? No, probably not just that, but that's a great place to begin. To, to get out there and to meet the needs, the physical needs of the people around us. We probably should be involved in the food security business. We probably should still be involved in the literacy business. We probably should be involved in all these processes that make for a good life, a healthy life, a holistic life, but I've got to tell you, I've I got to tell you, I don't see it very often. I don't see very often churches changing the world. I tell you, I, I did one time see a small group of religious people not too long ago change the world. But it was through tragedy. And it wasn't just because of the tragedy itself. It was also because of their response to that tragedy. I've got to tell you, forgiveness may be the most powerful force in the universe than it is propelled by love. Here's the story. You probably know about this. It's October 2nd, 2006. And a crazy man by the name of Charles Carl Roberts sent his kids to school, his own two children, he sent them to school, and then he went to the hardware store. Now, some of you, I've actually talked to a couple of you that live not too far from this, and you remember this all too clearly. He went to the hardware store and bought the necessary equipment to torture and then kill Amish school kids. Now, he got to this Amish one-room schoolhouse, okay? He got to this Amish one-room schoolhouse, And it seems that he dismissed all the people who would be a threat to him, like the big people. And eventually it was just him and a room full of children and girls. Now, let's stop for a second. Those Amish people are weird, aren't they? I mean, if for all intents and purposes, we look at them and we say abnormal. Right? 
I mean, they haven't figured out electricity yet, apparently, right? They haven't figured out the absolute thrill of driving a motorized vehicle. They haven't figured out the thrill of the iPhone, right? I mean, there are so many different ways in which we can look at them and say different and abnormal. But since they aren't caught up in some of those other things, my hunch is that they have time and energy to be involved, I don't know, maybe in the reading of Scripture and the praying of prayers like the Lord's Prayer. And do you remember the line that goes something like this? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's one of the lines that I mean when I say I think there are a lot of people who pray that prayer long before they actually they actually mean it. And I got to tell you, that's okay. But I do want you to continue to pray it so that it actually claims more and more and more and more of you. Charles Carl Roberts had in mind that he would somehow restrain these kids, these girls, and, and then torture them and then kill them. But in the process, he took so long that he recognized that the authorities had already started to circle the building. And so he didn't have time to do all of the other stuff, so he just lined up, and he had them lined up, and he was about to kill the first one. And the first one was five. And a 13-year-old girl said, Nope. Don't shoot her. Shoot me. She's only five. Shoot me. And he did. So right there in front of the rest of those kids, Charles Carl Roberts shot this 13-year-old girl. And then he lowered the gun at the 5-year-old again. This is the one that just that really gets to me. Having just seen what happened to the 13-year-old, an 11-year-old then said, no, don't shoot her, shoot me. And he did. Now, after hearing that second shot, apparently the authorities closed in on the building. He just started shooting. He shot and killed five that day and one died afterwards. Now what I want you to notice though, as awful as this is, and we're going to compare this with another situation here in a second, as awful as this is, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the reaction of the Amish community. So after all the shots had stopped, five young ladies were dead. Another was mortally wounded, and others were wounded. Do you, how many of you remember some of the news coverage? Do you remember, and you know that the Amish people do not want to be photographed, right? But immediately, there was the shot of a grandfather who had gathered other family members right there over the body of one of his dead granddaughters. And they heard him say to them, we must not think ill of this man or his family. Are you kidding me? <laughs> there was immediate forgiveness from a, a grandparent. Not only that, but that day that Amish community started to organize meals for the shooter's wife and children. Not only that, they immediately expressed their care and their forgiveness of the shooter. Not only that, the Amish set up a college fund for the shooter's children when they still had medical bills to pay themselves. Now, before we move on, before we move on, when news leaked out about this sort of reaction to the shooting, right? When news leaked out, I had a friend of mine, another pastor, call me 
And he said, I'm so mad at these Amish people. I'm so mad at them. John, do you think think it's possible to forgive too quickly? So I got to tell you, my friend's name is Jim. I said, Jim, I got to tell you, I, I, I don't get the impression as I watch their reaction, as I watch them being portrayed in the news, I don't get the impression that this granddad, let's say, or that this entire Amish community somehow is underestimating the pain and the tragedy of the loss of these girls, I think this is how they are wired to respond. I mean, it's, it is not unlike our, our Savior, right? Who, in the midst of being killed himself, do you remember? That he did pray a prayer of forgiveness for those who were actually torturing and killing him in that moment. They kept taking meals to her house, Marie Roberts. They kept funneling money into these college funds, and for all I know, they may still be funneling money into these college funds for these little girls. Finally, Marie Roberts wrote this. She wrote, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. In April of 2007, there was another tragedy on the campus of Virginia Tech. Remember that one? 32 people, and maybe 33, were shot and killed that day when a, when a student sort of lost it with a gun. Happened about 9 o'clock in the morning. By 9.05, they were looking for someone to blame. I will never forget watching that coverage and watching the immediate reaction of the media sticking cameras into college students' faces who had just lost friends and for all I know, family members, and asking them, who's to blame? Who's to blame? And sure enough, for a solid 12 months after that, somebody had to sort through all of those legal ramifications. There were lawsuits. Lawsuits filed on behalf of every one of the victims. Every one. And the question was not just who's to blame, it's how do we get even? How do we get somehow a commensurate amount of money out of this? Blame and repayment. I think the tragedies are equal in terms of the violence that was done in each of these communities. But one of those tragedies continued a particular cycle of violence and another one of those tragedies ended the cycle of violence. The reaction to one of the tragedies continued a particular cycle of violence. I hit you, you hit me back. Who's to blame? The reaction to the other tragedy ended a cycle of violence. And and you should know this. This happened in October of 2006, but what you probably don't know is that something actually kind of similar happened all the way back in March of that same year to the same community. A young attorney was coming home so late at night that it was actually early in the morning, and she fell asleep at the wheel. And about 5 o'clock in the morning, she ran off the road and hit a 12-year-old Amish boy on a bicycle and killed him instantly. She was charged with vehicular homicide. Heard of that? And when the day came for her to have her day in court, the Amish folks had already written a letter. They had already cared for her. They had already loved her. They had already fed her. They had already forgiven her. And they did not show up and they did not press charges. And she walked away. Seven months before any of this happened. So it's not like 
that was unusual reaction and behavior by the Amish. How? How does this happen? Well, to tie together a couple of the sermons you've already heard me preach, here's how it happens. These people find ways through prayer, through conversation, through Scripture. They find ways to lean into and wallow around in the love that God has for us. And somehow in the process, the lines are blurred. Somehow in the process of all of the Scripture, and I know these are odd people, but how many 13-year-olds, how many 13-year-olds do you know who would have stepped in front of that gun? How many 11-year-olds do you know who would have stepped in front of that gun? How many granddads and communities, even Christian communities, would have reacted the way they reacted? Now, who's crazy? You see, the people of God have a very difficult task to undertake. And it's not just to avoid a dirty world. It's to change it. Hear what I said. (laughs) Your calling as a participating body part sort of member in the body of Christ, your calling is not just to keep yourself clean so that you're not dirtied by the world. Your calling as a participating, functioning member of the body of Christ is to be a part of the effort whereby the world is reorganized. I do not want you to adjust to the world. Given the chance, what's happening here, what happens in your churches, should be adjusting you for the world so that you can actually adjust the world. Does that make any sense? I think, in some sense, we've made the whole being loved by God thing harder than it needs to be. But maybe then we have made Christianity easier than it's supposed to be. The calling is to change the world. John, so where do we go from here? What do we do do with this? Well, in one sense, what I want you to do is I want you to flesh out what it means to be the people of God. I want you to take very seriously that God still wants to have a body, and He might be looking at you. In fact, He is looking at you. How will this body adjust and change and influence the neighborhood around this place? How might this church adjust and change and influence the neighborhood around the sanctuary? Have you underdefined, underappreciated Christianity? Do you realize what it is that God asks of you? It is not to continue the cycles of violence that you see around you. It is to introduce into that cycle of violence forgiveness. Forgiveness. Real forgiveness. Not the kind where someone says, oh, it's all right. (laughs) But the kind that actually opens the cell door and allows someone to attain again that place of meaning and honor in your estimation. The calling of the body of Christ is to be Christ. calling of the body of Christ is to be Christ. The calling of the body of Christ is to pray that prayer until we need it. Now, I don't want you to pray it this time. I'm going to pray it. But I want you to listen. I'm going to stop after every little stanza, right? And I want you to let it sink in and grab you by the throat. I want you to bow your heads with me.
And we're going to close after this. I'm going to pray it, and you just listen. Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day Give us just this day our daily bread. And God, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. This would change the world if we were these people. And lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In other words, and with this I finish, and I'm glad to talk with you. And Jess, we just kind of play something as people walk out. That'd be great. Thank you, Jess, for jumping up there and stepping in tonight. In other words, what we did last night, and I knew I was going to say all this tonight, but I need to put the proper perspective on last night, that night when you wallowed around, and rightfully so, and I want you to continue to wallow around in the love of God. But you have to know that that is not the end. If it is, you have misunderstood the love of God. The love that some of you received in an obviously profound way last night, that love that you received is the beginning. And it is the means whereby God will change the world. The love that you received last night is not the end. It's the beginning. And it's the means whereby you will change the world. Thank you for coming tonight. You are dismissed. I've got one more sermon in the morning. It's about St. Patrick. You'll love it. All right? So I'll see you in the morning for chapel. Otherwise, see you later. Thank you.